Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Federal prosecutors are entrusted with incredible powers of discretion, determining who to charge criminally and what charges are brought. Today, we'll discuss a potential threat to that independence from within the Department of Justice itself or from the president. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by two former prosecutors turned law professors, Professor Green, Professor Royfi. Welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. At the end of the day, the the federal prosecutor is part of the Department of Justice, which is in the executive branch. So what power does the president have over the prosecutor? That's a controversial question. And most people think, especially after Watergate, that the president has no power and ought to exert no power over federal prosecutors. And so this notion of independence ought to be respected both by the president and um, preserved by the attorney general. There are certain officials and there are certain people who disagree with that and think that the president has the power to control prosecution and that the consequence to that should be political. That seems like a very problematic view because by the time we could vote out a president for exercising prosecutorial discretion in an abusive sort of way, we could have many people who have unjustly lost their liberty sitting in jail. So it it does seem problematic. So if the president said, let's only go after registered Democrats for tax crimes, That's a great question. I think any federal prosecutor who had a sense of ethical obligations would say under those circumstances that that was an inappropriate, that would be an inappropriate way to exercise his or her discretion. What that person should do under those circumstances is another question. Should they quit or risk being fired by refusing to do it? That would be one way to deal with what would would ultimately be the corruption of prosecutorial discretion and could conceivably be unethical on a lot of grounds um, if they were to act on it. You know, one of the complexities is that the president does have the right to make decisions about criminal justice policy. And so, you know, if the president wants to say that we should put more resources into drug cases and fewer resources into white collar cases, that's probably a decision that the president is, is permitted to make if the president chooses to do that. And indeed, President Obama wrote a law review article in the Harvard Law Review about the president's authority in the criminal context. And of course, the attorney general is a cabinet member and the Department of Justice is an executive agency. And therefore, the, you can't build a wall between the president and the, the attorney general. And so the, the question becomes, how do you avoid the influence of the president over criminal justice decisions in individual cases when you know that the president is not supposed to have influence, particularly you know, political influence in, in cases that are politically charged? The president does have the power to hire and fire his or her attorney general. The president has authority, certainly, to fire the attorney general. I think, in general, it's the attorney general who gets to fire the individual U.S. attorneys. And if you go further down the line, there's some protection for subordinate prosecutors, and and they can go to the 
Merit System Review Board, I think it's called, if they think they're wrongfully fired. So the, the main authority, the, you know, the hiring, firing authority of the president is res with respect to the attorney general. And there's some limitations there. So it's, it's true that if a president thinks the attorney general isn't proceeding in a certain case where the attorney general should, the president can fire the attorney general. But then, of course, attorney generals have to get confirmed. And so that opens up an inquiry potentially in the Senate the next time that the president is appointing an attorney general. And, and you could have a whole conversation about, about prosecutorial independence there. So a notorious example of a president interfering or attempting to interfere with the activity of prosecutors by firing his attorney general was Richard Nixon during the Watergate investigation. And he wanted his attorney general to get rid of the special prosecutor who was investigating these series of crimes and repeatedly requested that the attorney general do that. When the attorney general refused, he fired that attorney general. He did that with two separate attorneys general. And it was ultimately, it's labeled the Saturday night massacre because it happened late at night. In the end, it wasn't particularly successful because the new the attorney general who finally did agree to fire the special prosecutor appointed a new special prosecutor who continued that investigation. So it didn't ultimately achieve what Nixon had wanted it to achieve, but it did lead to a lot of concern about the potential politicization of the Department of Justice. You raise an interesting question, which is what ethical responsibilities does an attorney general have? I know that they serve at the pleasure of the president, but they still have a role in our judicial system that's that's critical. Yeah, so traditionally, the attorney general has been seen to play two roles, as Professor Green was saying. In a one of his hats, when he puts one of his hats on, he's a cabinet member and he's a political advisor and he's part of the legal team that advises the president. And when he puts his other hat on, he is the chief law enforcer and he has that role. And it's a very complex job because he, because he has those two roles that are in a certain way in tension with one another, he also has the role of policing that divide, making sure that improper political considerations don't infiltrate the Department of Justice, particularly prosecutors' work. Within the Department of Justice, prosecutors, do they have to do a balancing act where they're, they're taking some guidance from the top, but they still have a code of justice? Well, I think it's pretty clear in our tradition that it's proper for policy decisions to make its make their way down to individual prosecutors' offices. So U.S. attorneys' offices should think about what the president's policy priorities are. For instance, if a particular president wanted to focus a lot of time and resources on, say, terrorist prosecutions, then that should be done on individual prosecutors' offices. However, there's an improper way in which political considerations could make their way into prosecutors' decisions, and that would be if it affected discretionary decisions in individual cases. In other words, if a particular prosecutor was thinking about whether or not to bring a case against an individual and that individual had a connection with uh, the president or somebody else in the White House, and the White House then instructed that prosecutor to go easy on that person, that would be problematic. And of course, the reverse would be even more problematic if the president were to suggest that an individual prosecutor should pursue his political opponents. That sounds vaguely familiar. Are you talking about the case where President Trump had a conversation with then FBI Director Jim Comey about 
Flynn? Yes. So that's an infamous incident that made its way into the report that was issued by Robert Mueller, who's the special prosecutor in the Russia probe. And what happened there was that the president allegedly told Jim Comey that Michael Flynn is a good guy and to to go easy on him. So that would be a prime example of improper politicization of the Department of Justice. You make a distinction between policy, or the president's ability to set policy, and then his or her ability to dictate individual cases. Does that, by that, do you mean the president could say, look, let's, let's dial down some of these drug charges, or let's, let's go after a certain type of crime? Exactly. So by policy, when you elect a certain official, it has consequences. And that official here, the president, has particular priorities with regard to criminal justice. And those are important. And the public, you know, there, there is a kind of public accountability where you want the public to be able to see the consequences of that election in this particular regard. So if you have a particular president who wants to wage the war on drugs, by all means, he can put all of his resources into doing that. And if the public decides that was a mistake, then they can elect a different president next term. But that, that's extremely different from saying, this is what I want you to do in a particular case. That is problematic because while prosecutors can exercise their discretion in all sorts of ways, they can consider lots of things. There are certain things that are off limits. And one of the things that is off limits is whether or not that person who you are investigating or thinking of charging has powerful connections. That is not something that's appropriate for a prosecutor to consider. And so that's where that line is. Policy is fine and appropriate, but dictating the actions of a prosecutor in a particular case can be extremely problematic. But do you think that the conversation itself is improper, that the attorney general should walk out, should, should stop the president, should say, this is not a conversation that we're allowed to have? I think this is a norm that has developed over time. And norms are, by nature, things that can sometimes have exceptions. So there might be a time in which it would be appropriate for a president to bring up a particular view of a particular high-profile case, in part because of its significant intersection with policy. But here, it it seems highly improper to me. I mean, this, this this is not, it's not because he was thinking, you know, there's there are important deterrent value. It's just do me a favor because this is my buddy. And I, I think that's highly inappropriate. And breaking that norm is significant because all of the president's tweets, think about how many times he said what he wanted to have happen in individual cases. That to me already, without any of the rest of it, is problematic. What do you, what do, you do about situations where, the policy is intertwined with partisan politics. So, for example, you can imagine a president saying, well, I want to focus on inner city crime, and in particular, election fraud in the inner cities. Well, uh, come on. I mean, that transparently would be about, you know, focusing on... Now, I think you can say, I want to give more priority to election fraud than tax fraud. But, but there comes a point where it becomes transparently political that it's directed at one party and not another party. How, how do you deal with that? Right. In any of these individual cases, I think, you know, it's up to the discretion of the prosecutor, to the, the attorney general or whoever is receiving on the receiving end of this conversation to think thoroughly about what, what, what aspect is legitimate policy and which isn't. And I think you can err on the side of implementing a president's policy as long as there isn't an injustice in an individual case. 
Professor Rafi and I have a strong view on issues of federal prosecutor independence, and we've written two articles, at least on, on this. But our view is not universally shared. Attorney General Bill Barr quite famously said, what organization would ever give power to its lowliest member? So, you know, he wants absolute control. He wants a control from the top down. And that is in order to consolidate political control over the Department of Justice. I don't, I don't think his view is particularly coherent, but he has at least said that from time to time. And there are others who take that, that view as well. You know, to me, the tradition of prosecutorial dependence, independence having developed over time is partially about the attorney general keep making sure that prosecutors, line prosecutors, aren't affected by inappropriate considerations. Another recent example that's raised questions involve allegations that have widely been viewed as fabricated or spurious about election fraud, yet the president is asking the Department of Justice to investigate. What ethical questions does that raise? I think it raises a number of questions, but, but one is part of the principle of prosecutorial independence from partisan politics is that uh, federal prosecutors are not supposed to do things to influence elections. And so there's been a, a general policy that you don't bring charges that might be influential on an election in the lead up to the election. And likewise, I think the principle here would be you don't publicly initiate election fraud investigations either uh, right before the election or right after while the election is still being contested, because that might validate these claims which are being litigated in court. So quite a number of former prosecutors and even some current ones were critical of Bill Barr for publicly announcing that these you know, election investigations were being undertaken uh, both before and after the immediately after the election because of the feeling that the public announcement of this was going to be potentially influential. It would, it would legitimate Trump's claims that the election was, was fraudulent. So I think from, from that point of view, even though it might seem like, oh, election fraud, that's a, a policy decision, whether to look into that as opposed to drug cases or gun running or something else. Given the timing of the announcements and the public nature of the announcements, it ended up turning something that could have been non-political into something that looked very political. Well, that's an interesting question. Wouldn't you want that fraud to be looked at immediately, or is it just the question of announcing the investigation? In general, Prosecutors don't make it a public announcement when they begin an investigation. They don't do that for a number of reasons. One is because they often want their investigations to be confidential. Uh, that's, you know, grand jury secrecy, for example, reflects that. And also because it's unfair to suspects and targets and, and witnesses to, to publicly announce investigation. You're not supposed to impugn people's reputations, at least not until they're convicted. And so if the norm is not to announce an investigation, and then you announce that you're doing an election fraud investigation, you're sending a message. And, and what you're implicitly sending a message about is you think election fraud occurred, and, to, and the timing of it is highly suspect and improper. Let's talk about the case involving Roger Stone. Professor Royfi, maybe you can set it up for us. 
That's a really good example of what people have seen as the breach of prosecutorial independence that this in this recent administration. And what happened in that case was that a, a number of line prosecutors were assigned to take on that prosecution. It was a prosecution that emerged from Robert Mueller's investigation, but was sent over to a normal prosecutor or regular line prosecutor. And they had proceeded in this case that had analyzed the law and recommended a sentence in the in the federal system. There's sentencing guidelines. And they generally give you the range of sentences that are possible for different crimes. And prosecutors tend to recommend a sentence within that range. And that's exactly what happened. And then Bill Barr stepped in shortly after the president had tweeted something about how um, unfair and awful this prosecution was and how ridiculous the sentence was that that they were requesting for Roger Stone. And then in steps bar um, and overrules the decision of the line prosecutors on the recommended sentence. And this was really controversial, in part because it's just not done. This is so unprecedented that federal prosecutors were really up in arms because it seemed so much that this must have been in response to the president's urging. And that would be an inappropriate politicization of the Department of Justice, just what we were talking about before, which is go easy on my friends, right? That's the kind of corruption that this principle is designed to prevent against. And the line prosecutors ended up, I think two of them resigned from the case and one of them resigned from the Department of Justice in protest. And, you know, you can see those resignations as as sending a real message to the public. This is what happened. I mean, I'm not sure how much the public was paying attention or how much it cared, but this was, you know, evidence of of a real problem in in terms of the principle that we've been discussing. Was there a question of whether or not the AG actually had that authority? The attorney general really does have this authority. It's just traditionally not exercised in this particular kind of way. So then when something happens that is traditionally not done, and in in fact, in this case, like really unprecedented, you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why is it different? Like, what is different about this case? And part of what happened with Bill Barr in a series of cases is that he so clearly, so publicly intervened in these series of cases that all involved associates of the president. So his motive was questioned. Now, he might and has defended that on, in certain in certain ways, suggesting that, no, no, he wasn't doing the president's bidding. He himself thought that there was something wrong with that sentence, or he himself has been concerned about the nature of the Russia investigation to start with. So, you know, there are different ways of seeing this, but it certainly raised in, a lot of red flags and people were very concerned because this did seem like the breaching of a principle that's been with us for decades, but really, you know, since the very beginning of American prosecution. We've talked a bit about the president's presence on Twitter. No case perhaps is more emblematic than that involving the Mueller report. Sure, absolutely. The Mueller report is really interesting in part because the president was tweeting about the Mueller report sort of endlessly. I mean, the Mueller investigation sort of endlessly as it was going on, you know, calling it a witch hunt and and, and implying that it was politically motivated, you know, run by 11 or some changing number of angry Democrats. And so in that climate, um, it was hard for Robert Mueller, who was trying to do a by the books investigation. And when he finally finished that investigation and issued his report, it came out in a somewhat problematic 
problematic way. And one important thing to remember about the Mueller investigation is that he was a special prosecutor. And special prosecutors are appointed when this notion of independence is even more important because the investigation is into high-ranking executive officials here, the president and, and some of the president's associates. And so there was an extra barrier that was created in order to prevent the president from controlling this investigation. And so when the report came out, Mueller had certain conclusions, but he declined to determine whether or not the facts that were supporting the question of whether or not the president obstructed justice, he neglected, he declined to say whether those amounted to a crime, whether or not they could be charged federally as obstruction of justice. He declined to do that because you, there's this policy that you you can't indict a sitting president. And so he said, what, what's the use of this? The, I'm, I just want to get these facts to Congress because Congress is the one that's supposed to hold the president accountable. I'm not going to give an opinion. So then before the report actually came out, Bill Barr issued this letter that purported to be a summary. And it in many ways misrepresented the conclusions of the report, making it seem much more like an exoneration than it actually was. And it also determined what Mueller did not and said, these facts, in my opinion, do not constitute obstruction of justice. Now, this act on the part of Bill Barr was, I think, the first in his tenure that made it seem as if he was not protecting this principle of prosecutorial independence. Why? Because he was doing the political bidding of his boss, essentially, of the president. His his words almost echoed those of the president's, and that led a number of people to be concerned about his intentions with regard to the Department of Justice. And this report that should have come out as a neutral report that where the facts could be seen as uh, as well-determined, well-established, then came out under this cloud of sort of politics. Like, to what extent is this all determined by politics? And that was undermining of the Department of Justice's central mission, one of its central missions, which is to be able to investigate through procedures that ensure the accuracy of the results. Professor Green, how is that not an example of the AG wearing two hats? While a has a duty to to lead the investigation in the Department of Justice, but B, he is the president's man. Maybe the report is more falling under that political gamut. One could understand that as a member of the administration who had been appointed by the president, he might spin the finding. And I think the, the problem was that, that a lot of people felt, in fact, that it was a disciplinary complaint filed with the D.C. bar, that, that went beyond you know, maybe how do you uh, characterize in the most positive way and became mischaracterization. And so Barr's characterization of the report's findings were at a time before the Mueller report became public. And so the uh, Congress was initially at least relying on his characterizations in the public when his letter became released, became reliant on it initially as well. And you count on lawyers generally and government lawyers in particular, and especially the chief government lawyer, the attorney general, to be truthful, even if they might view things in the light most favorable to the president. There, there's some boundary that you shouldn't be crossing. And the question here was whether he crossed that boundary. And as Professor Royfe says, the, the perception was that he crossed it because uh, of his partisanship wanting to do the president's bidding. And that, that is uh, beyond spin. Interesting. So there was actually uh, an ethical complaint made to the DC bar. What, what violation 
specifically did they allege? A, a group of prominent D.C. lawyers actually filed a complaint against Bill Barr based on a number of different grounds. But with respect to the Mueller report in particular, it pointed out that lawyers have to be truthful. There's a rule against dishonesty, deceit, fraud and misrepresentation by lawyers, even outside the work that they do as lawyers, and in particular when they are functioning as lawyers, and they're not supposed to unknowingly make false statements to others. And so the allegation was in part that Barr wasn't truthful, and in part also that he acted uh, disloyally to his client. Now, his client is not the president. His client is, uh, in general, the, the public. The Department of Justice is an executive branch agency, but it serves the public. It doesn't serve the political ends of the particular office holder in the presidency. And so I think part of the complaint was that Barr was not doing the, the disinterested work with the public interest in mind that an attorney general is supposed to do, that he was promoting the individual interests, political interests of the president and, and being deceitful in the process. While we're on the subject of of Associates of the president, let's talk about Michael Flynn. What was interesting in that case in terms of prosecutorial discretion? Yeah, I, I think the Flynn case is, is actually fascinating from the point of view of prosecutorial discretion. So he, he's investigated by the FBI. He makes, allegedly makes false statements to the FBI and federal prosecutors indict him for that or threaten to do that. And he works out a deal where he pleads guilty and the case gets assigned to a federal district judge in D.C. who's very well known, named Emmett Sullivan. And so he enters a plea and he's awaiting sentencing. And all of a sudden, Bill Barr says essentially to the prosecutors, you should move to vacate his guilty plea and, and to dismiss the case. Now, that's a very unusual thing. You know, sometimes prosecutors dismiss cases before they get a conviction, either, you know, by guilty plea or uh, by, by jury verdict. And so, sometimes even afterwards, if they find that there were procedural improprieties. And so you'll remember in the T Senator Ted Stevens prosecution, he was convicted by a jury, and then it was discovered that the prosecutors had unconstitutionally withheld exculpatory material, and uh, the Justice Department, under a new administration, moved to vacate that conviction. But here, the theory was, we're moving to set aside the case and dismiss it because he was innocent. We're not convinced that he was guilty. And of course, prosecutors make that judgment all the time before they bring charges, and sometimes even before a case is prosecuted. But here, what's extraordinary is Flynn pled guilty. And I think he pled, entered guilty plea not once, but twice. And he was awaiting sentence. And so ordinarily, a, a plea of guilty, an admission of guilt, resolves the question about whether somebody's guilty or not. Here, you not only had probable cause, but you had a plea of guilty and all you were doing was awaiting sentencing. And so it's a very unusual exercise of discretion. A quick pause for those attorneys listening for Sealy Credit. The code for this interview is 2291. Again, that's 2291. And now back to the interview.
does the prosecutor even have that authority after the case has already been closed? Well, the, the prosecutor can move to dismiss the case. I, I think after sentencing, it would be too late. There'd be a, a, a very different process. But before sentencing, it's not too late under the federal rules to move to set aside the case. But the judge doesn't invariably do it. It's not completely pro forma. It's not a completely ministerial task for the judge. And the judge can ask why. And if the judge is not satisfied with the reasons, there's some authority, some judicial authority there to deny the motion and, and go ahead with sentencing, even though neither the prosecution nor the defense particularly wants it. Here, here there would have been other motions to resolve as well because the defense had made some post-plea motions. And so what the judge did here was, since neither the prosecution nor the defense wanted to question the joint motion to vacate the guilty plea and dismiss the charges, the judge appointed a lawyer who happened to be a former federal district judge to argue the other side. And, you know, the case went up to the D.C. Circuit where the government and the defense both took the view that the judge couldn't appoint a lawyer to look into this and all the judge could do was grant the motion. And the D.C. Circuit was a little skeptical about the Judge Sullivan's power, but said he could have a hearing. And that's where things stood when President Trump pardoned General Flynn and, and mooted out the case. Professor Royfi, Professor Green, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. It's been great being here. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.